Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Darsh Shah. And I'm Dr. Ultima Shraja. And welcome to Medicine Redefined. A podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. Make no mistake, digital marketing is a science. Advice Media has created a proven roadmap that gets you from where your practice is now to where you want it to be. They call this their pyramid of success. Thousands of clients have proven that their six-stage approach is the optimal way for attracting new patients and retaining current ones. We get it. You're busy and don't have the time to be a digital marketer, marketing expert. You have lives to change. Give them just 30 minutes to consult with you. They would bet you are doing some things really, really well. And there might be areas where you can improve. That's where they come in. Just for spending time with them, they will give you a $60 Amazon gift card. You have nothing to lose. Book your consult today. Go to drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash advice media. That's drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash advice media. All right, everybody. Today, our guest is Dr. Ni Chang Liang, an integrative pulmonologist in San Diego who has taken the practice of meditation to heal herself. In this episode, you'll hear Dr. Liang talk about what it means to be mindful and in the present moment and how that term differs from meditation. We delve into how she incorporated mindfulness in her own journey as she battled cancer. And for those of you who may struggle with starting the practice of meditation, we even discuss the science behind it and all the amazing benefits. And lastly, as practitioners, how can we exactly talk about mindfulness with our patients in only 15 minutes? We get to that as well. So deep breath in and deep breath out. Let's begin. All right, Dr. Ni Chang Liang, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. So I'm super excited about this topic, mindfulness. Um, it's something that I've been learning. I've, I've, I've been practicing for quite some time now. But I think for a lot of people as individuals, this is such a great area. It's something that I think every individual tries to grasp or tries to understand. But because there's so many different perspectives, we tend to get lost. So in your terms, can you can let's just get right into it. What is mindfulness? Sure. Mindfulness is paying attention on purpose to the present moment without judgment. Wow, that was <laughs> that was verbatim. I like it. So repeat that Succinct, again. It's brief. I love it. So it's uh, it's basically John Kabat-Zinn's definition of paying attention on purpose to the present moment without any judgment. Wow. Wow. It's it's exact. It sounds very just on the surface, but there's there's so much meaning to that when you break it down like that. Um, how how do how many definitions are there of mindfulness? Right. So is that the only one you subscribe to? Or is that the only one you type like tend to practice or think of? Or is there anything else? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. So the the other one that I like is um, the state of being when your mind and your body are in the same place at the same time. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So it's, it's, again, it's about being in that present moment. Now, can you at mm -hmm. least talk about why it's so important to be in the present moment rather than anywhere else if it's past or present or sorry, past or future? So if you aren't in the present moment, then you're not really living your life. We spend way too much time in our heads, especially in healthcare. We make hundreds, if not thousands of decisions every day cognitively. 
Um, and yet, how many times have we actually sat down and checked in with our own bodies, um, with our own emotions, as we witness suffering? Um, oftentimes, we're like living in the past, catastrophizing about the future, or thinking about the future, and potentially wishing things were different than they actually are. And so there's a lot of suffering when you live in the past or in the future, when really the most important time to be living is now. I love that, Nisheng. I mean, <clears throat> I know, as you mentioned, that all of us healthcare providers are making these hundreds and thousands of decisions. And, and it's not just unique to us. I mean, individuals in every field tend to do that. And I'm guilty of this myself. I'm always thinking about the next thing. What's the next step? I'm, we're all planners, right? And it's it's all just next step, next step. And you got to get to to the, the goal and the next goal was the next goal. And so I, I want to talk more about how to practice that art and really try to perfect it and hone on, on that craft. But maybe just since we were talking about definitions, a lot of times people use the term meditation and mindfulness interchangeably. And I don't think that they're necessarily the same thing. So maybe just to so we can lay out those semantics a little bit further, if you could explain the difference between meditation and mindfulness. Sure. So, so mindfulness is like a state of being in that way of paying attention to the now without any judgment. And that state can be cultivated or you can train yourself to be more mindful by using meditation as a vehicle, similar to exercise to like increase aerobic capacity and build muscle. So meditation is the exercise for the brain in which you can learn to be more mindful. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, later on in this episode, we can definitely get into kind of how you teach that. Um, but tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you come to understand mindfulness? How did you really get into this practice? Yeah, so I was born and raised Buddhist. So there were little tidbits of Zen meditation kind of interspersed throughout my childhood. However, it wasn't until I was diagnosed with cancer in my second year of pulmonary critical care fellowship that my body literally made me stop. And it was a message loud and clear that I heard as if I kept going 200 miles an hour, my body would literally put me in the ground because my stress levels were such that the lifestyle I was living was unsustainable for health and wellness. And so actually during a cancer survivor day at the cancer center that I was getting my treatment at the founding director of the UCSD executive um, center for mindfulness basically came and gave a talk and really resonated with me. And I knew from that moment, I wanted to learn it, to teach it, to practice it. And that's been practically like 10 years in the making now. So with that, I started off with mindfulness-based stress reduction to the foundational course, if you will, for, for the cultivation of mindfulness and three cycles of taking that later, different teacher trainings and mentorship programs, and even also doing some training over at uh, University of Rochester's mindful practice programs with Ron Epstein and Mick Krasner during one of their teacher training intensive retreats um, over the last couple of years. Um, I've been teaching it much more regularly as part of my day to day. Yeah, I mean, th that's crazy. And I remember listening to one of your episodes where you had talked about 
when you had gotten that diagnosis, you, I think you had a biopsy done and the very next day you flew out to an American Cancer Thoracic Society meeting to maybe do a presentation or something. And mm-hmm. it, it's just like, to me, being in this healthcare field and, and being a resident right now, it didn't surprise me at all. And somebody might say, what the heck? You just got on the plane and jumped out there to go do a presentation. But it's just, it's again, going back to that, we're on to the next thing, right? And a lot of times we tend to just sacrifice our health and we're not even, we're putting that on the back burner because you're you're trying to care for your patients or you're trying to advance your career or whatever it is that you're trying to do. But I'm curious, you mentioned that there was that one presentation that you heard something really, <clears throat> excuse me, something really resonated with you. What was it specifically about that presentation that almost turned this switch from off to on that you were like, okay, this is kind of my calling. Whatever I'm doing right now, I know it's, it's obviously your own medical illness, but something specific about that presentation, because this is the second time I've heard you mention that. I think that it is the potential health benefits that it has uh, and that it can make us more uh, joyful and it helps us to basically align our mind, body, and souls in a way that is not just good for our health, but also good for the people around us and potentially has benefits for the patients that we treat as well. So I've, I saw it as a, as a nugget of wisdom for a potential healthier option in how to live life that transcended beyond just um, that particular moment that I saw it as something that I could embody and live and then teach. And kind of like in my own podcast, we talk about the ripple effects of mindfulness, like spreading that out into the world to potentially make it a better place. So would you, would you say that was the tipping point at that point where you, where you realized, okay, you know, I got to kind of get my life together after, you know, going through this busy, busy, busy schedule and not really taking care of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. The cancer diagnosis really reshaped the way that I self care and really you cannot take care of others unless you care for yourself first and foremost. Yeah, absolutely. Right. We always talk about, we gotta, we gotta fill up our own cup before we, before we can fill others. But, you know, as a Palm Crit fellow, for those out there, I mean, you are, you're taking care of the sickest patients in our healthcare system, right? So what was the conversation in your head, you know, taking care of the sickest patients, but then having a diagnosis of cancer, you know, was it all doom and gloom? At what point did you become, you know, somewhat optimistic? Can, can you kind of take us through that dialogue, that internal dialogue you had? Sure. There is a lot of catastrophization because the way that I received the diagnosis was after my poster discussion session from the American Thoracic Society meeting, I received a phone call during lunch um, and had never been more scared in my life when I heard the words, you have breast cancer. Uh, And the fact was, is that we didn't know anything about the tumor type, what stage it was, what the treatment plan was going to be. And of course, especially in healthcare, we're trained to think about worst case scenarios and prepare for that on behalf of our patients. But when it happens to you, that kicks in and there was immediate catastrophizing. So I dropped everything, uh, canceled the rest of the conference and the hotel flew back on the first flight out 
back to San Diego to really be with my family while we awaited the advice of the next steps from my physicians. And is that when you kind of started through the process of going through treatments and and what was that like? Yeah. So I enrolled in a clinical trial called the iSpy2 trial, which is still actually enrolling. And uh, I was part of a New England Journal of Medicine article. I can actually point myself out on that article because I was one of very few Asian uh, participants in that clinical trial. And so there were doctor's appointments after doctor's appointments, especially with the clinical trial enrollment. And I got a second opinion. Um, it was kind of a whirlwind, honestly, getting all of the ducks lined up in place for the treatment plan and the course. And then it ended up being like five months of a really, really tough chemo regimen, lost all my hair, including my nose hair. So I have like a very, very keen gratitude for nose hairs in general. Otherwise I had like chronic runny nose all the time uh, and underwent. So neoadjuvant chemotherapy for those five months. And then I had uh, bilateral mastectomies with reconstruction, um, which ended up being like three more surgeries. So I took a year off of fellowship to do all of that and really like not only kind of care for myself on the outside, because my scars from surgeries, my port placement, they were all healing, but also taking some time internally through talking with an oncology therapist to help me through processing everything that I had gone through and then incorporating mindfulness to help deal with the anxiety of the uncertainty once treatment was over. Absolutely. So, you know, you t- you're, you're going through treatments, you talk about adjuvant treatment. How did you incorporate mindfulness? Did, did you have a routine? And what were you hoping to gain out of that? Yeah, so I initially started more with mindful movement from yoga. So I was doing like gentle yoga practice pretty regularly and making sure that I was doing it outside. One of the things in training was that I realized in retrospect during cancer treatment that I definitely wasn't getting outside enough, even though I was doing my fellowship training in San Diego. So doing that outside and um, that was how I initially incorporated it. And then after that, there was just the immersion into the mindfulness-based stress reduction program itself, where it was a basically a nine-week commitment for the course with 45 to 60 minutes of formal practice every day. Yeah, I, I mean, just something that, that you said that kind of strikes out to me out there is, you know, a lot of times when some, some individual goes through this adversity, right, we have a medical illness, you talk about the scars and the trauma and all that, that tends to heal for the most part. The true healing, though, comes from within. And and I think I've, I've heard you and, and, and your, your counterpart on your podcast talk about this, is that all that stuff is going to heal. But if you're not healing from within, um, then the internal scars are going to make you sicker for the long run. You're not going to truly recover from whatever ailment that you're struggling with, right? And it sounds like mindfulness was your tool or one, your strategy to help you. And, and you continue to use that today because you've talked about this concept of scanxiety, which is a, a term that I've only heard you talk about. And it's interesting. 
And it, it makes me think about in our profession for, for Darsh and I, we're physiatrists, right? So we see a lot of individuals with spinal cord injury. We see traumatic brain injury. For, so all these disabilities and, you know, and amputations and those kinds of things. And again, they have these life-changing diagnoses now um, when most of the time that there really isn't bouncing back from. And so maybe they can heal on the outside or maybe they can come to this, this new way of life or let's just use spinal cord injury as an example. We know that depression, anxiety, and these mental health disorders are, the prevalence is really high for individuals. You know, a common thing that we learn about in medical school is older individuals, a lot of times, you know, they appear to be depressed and you're like, okay, don't, you know, or they appear to be down and, um, and, and they're depressed, but you don't, you don't want to mistake that for some type of, you know, cognitive disabilities and vice versa and those kinds of things. And it also reminds me about, you know, in spinal cord injury patients, suicide is the second leading cause of death, especially for individuals younger than 25. So it's not something that to be taken lightly. And that's where the mindfulness component, I think in our practice that we could use so much more is helping those individuals heal from within to try to accept or make the most of the, the new terms that they have that life's given to them. And yeah, I mean, I, I think about that and, and love to hear your thoughts about, you know, again, you're a palm cord fellow and now you're obviously, uh, you're not a fellow anymore, excuse me, you were a fellow, but you, now you're a palm cord doc and you're seeing a lot of individuals who might've had this disability from COVID, long COVID, those kinds of things. Is there a role for mindfulness and that healing from within that you've talked about before? That's uh, such a great statement. Um, yeah, I've seen now probably hundreds of patients who've had COVID from various age groups, uh, various clinical consequences, mental health consequences. Uh, and so we know from medical literature that mindfulness has over 9,000 articles published about it. And in the pulmonary realm, we know that there's positive studies looking at asthma uh, some in COPD, addiction, like smoking cessation, insomnia, and then also anxiety and depression, because also in chronic lung disease, not excluding COVID, because I think we're going to see more literature about that. But like, we know that anxiety and depression are comorbid factors in, for instance, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and then asthma, anxiety is a huge trigger for asthma. And so, yeah, the, the literature shows that definitely can help with basically improving the quality of life of these patients who have chronic diseases in helping to tamper down perhaps the anxiety and depression component of it. But ultimately there's something that happens on a physiologic level at a neuroplasticity level that occurs that ends up not just helping their brain, but also the rest of their body, like their immune system, their ability for, uh, digestion in some cases, their cardiovascular health. So I think that even though mindfulness in and of itself is a practice for the brain, it's far reaching, but because it is a practice for the brain, it is a potential healing salve internally for people with chronic illnesses um, and also people who just want to improve upon their, their well-being because stress is ubiquitous in day-to-day -day life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you just, you just touched on some of the, 
the science, right? The neuroplasticity, the cardiovascular benefits. Now, I think a lot of people don't feel those things, right? It's not something that you you meditate or do yoga for 30 minutes and then boom, you start to feel those effects. And I think that's why a lot of people, not I don't want to say stay away, but they don't continue that practice. They're not consistent, mm -hmm. at least with mindfulness. Now, as you were going through your journey, you know, being a doctor, were you looking at the data? Were you looking at things and seeing how they can affect a human physiologically? And if so, can you kind of break down what some of those things were showing? Yeah, so from uh, asthma perspective, for instance, um, there was a positive study looking at short-acting inhaler use. So asthma patients need their short-acting inhalers if they have increased shortness of breath, wheezing, or cough. And with those patients who had undergone mindfulness training, they didn't need to reach for their short-acting inhaler anymore as much. So, um, and then when you look at like quality of life asthma scales, same thing, their quality of life improved. They were no longer as symptomatic overall. So just that's a snippet from like the pulmonary world. Um, from more the, the immunology world, small studies, but still pretty compelling where um, mindfulness practitioners got like an immunization and their um, immune response was actually higher than that of non mindfulness meditators, for instance. So there's a lot of psychoneuroimmunology that is getting published. And I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg for some of this physiology. But we yeah, know absolutely. that the practice of mindfulness upregulates our parasympathetic nervous system, our rest and digest nervous system. It upregulates vagal tone, um, especially in the era of COVID. There's a lot more stress that's prevalent. So Many more people are in fight or flight mode a lot more, and we need to like rebalance the nervous system into more rest and digest. Absolutely. So do you, th so do you think it's mainly just the science behind parasympathetics versus sympathetics? I know like breath work, for example, which I'll do all immediate, immediate effects, right? Just right away. Mm -hmm. Or if I want an acupressure mat, honestly, uh, in the, at like 5 a.m., right before I go to the hospital, I drive, I'm on my acupressure mat on some days and I just feel my anxiety just kind of wash away. Um, so is that kind of what the backbone of the theory is in, with, with mindfulness? Yes, but there is also a, um, there's also something to be said about an intentional habitual practice, this installation of a ritual for wellness that supersedes that of just like the physiologic benefit of, of mindfulness, right? So if we incorporate ritual in our day-to-day -day, in our wellness rituals, whatever they may be, like your acupressure, um, breath work, which I incorporate a lot with my patients, I add the mindfulness to like purse lip breathing and guide them through that in a clinic visit, for instance, um, that can be just as powerful or has a potential to be just as powerful. Consistency and making a ritual. I mean, I think that we've talked about, Darsh and I've talked about consistency, you know, over perfection all, all day, right? I mean, that's kind of what beats it, no matter what your goals are when it comes to being consistent with your nutrition, exercise, we've talked about mindfulness, sleep, all the, basically the foundational pillars of health that we talk about often on this show. The issue is time, right? 
I used to be in this camp a couple of years ago where again, being a medical trainee, you, you know, you're, you're sleep deprived most of the time. And I'm okay. I got to do mindfulness and be five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day. And then I would think to myself, well, that's like 10 minutes a day that I could sleep extra. Why wouldn't I just do that? And it wasn't until I started doing it on a consistent basis that I was able to appreciate the benefits of, again, being present. One of, one of the very first things that you mentioned. So my question for you is, let's just say it's a novice, right? A novice individual that you're trying to convince maybe in your clinic practice, hey, maybe this might be beneficial for you on a day-to-day basis. You might not see benefits immediately, but maybe long-term down the road, a couple of months or so, how would you advise them to, to start off? Would it be a minute a day, five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day? Like how, how does one incorporate this into their daily, just being more mindful in their practice? It totally depends on the patient, but it can start with just using breath as an anchor. So encompassing some of the breathing exercises that they're already taught in pulmonary rehabilitation, for instance, but using that perslip breathing more as a practice that they can incorporate every day as opposed to just when they're acutely short of breath. Um, so even just three breath cycles, right? Three perslip breath cycles. Um, so I invite them to try it as a practice. Um, the other aspect is that one can be introduced to mindfulness through informal practice. So when there's an intentional placement of attention on something that you're doing, something as simple as washing dishes, showering, noticing the sensations of water, even our hand washing in the era of COVID, we're like hand washing so much more. Those are all opportunities to notice the sensations of the gel, the alcohol gel or the soap and the water running over our hands. It's an opportunity to like hit some acupressure points when we're doing a hand massage with washing. Um, So it depends on the patient. If they're ready for some formal practice, then I give them um, links to sites and apps to just check out, poke around and be curious about. So it starts with like piquing their curiosity about it. And then also giving them the opportunity then if they're not ready for something like that to try some informal practices where can pick like hand washing or even brushing one's teeth. Like mindfulness can be applied to doing anything or not doing anything anytime, anywhere, and can be something that can be practiced by anyone. I love that. I I especially love the fact that you know, how, how little that you actually have to do to incorporate that. I mean, you mentioned three breath cycles, right? I mean, depending on how long that cycle is, it could be 30 seconds tops. I remember actually not too long ago coming across a study. It was a systematic review. I think there weren't a lot of trials that they had evaluated, but it was north of a thousand patients that they looked at. They, I think they evaluated ultimately the effects of diaphragmatic breathing and its effects on physiological and psychological stress. And basically what they had they had two separate groups and it was a kind of an eight week trial of one group that independently, there was no other intervention it was paired with. It was just diaphragmatic breathing. I forget exactly how they coached or cued them to do that. But what they found ultimately were that at rest, the group that incorporated 20 sessions of over eight weeks of diaphragmatic breathing had decreased resting breathing rates 
um, that were measured during sessions. They also had measured their salivary cortisol levels that also decreased over time. Whereas, you know, the control group, they didn't have those changes. Um, they also found that the systolic and diastolic blood pressure, kind of what you guys have talked about, the, the uh, cardiovascular benefits, improved in the deep breathing group, whereas in the control group, they didn't, that didn't happen. And then, of course, the perceived stress was much lower, and, and that's objective. So it's much harder for an individual to kind of manipulate their own blood pressure, right? Uh, so that was something that really stood out to me. It's like, wow, this is pretty profound. And it was as little as eight weeks that people were able to see these effects. So, so that's that's pretty impressive. I mean, I think most people understand, hey, high blood pressure, stress, we don't really understand that. And, you know, high blood pressure, stress equals stroke, sometimes in a very, very, very basic level when it comes to uh, in our world in PM&R. But I thought that was really interesting. I want to go back to this concept of being present, though, because you've kind of talked about it in different ways, right? Brushing your teeth, washing the dishes, just even washing your hand for those 20 seconds instead of maybe singing the birthday song, you're kind of just feeling the soap on your hands and that kind of stuff. Again, it is hard to do in this world where we're just go, 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 right? So many different things are fighting for attention. It's my phone with my notifications. I got the Instagram. I got Twitter, this happening. TV's on in the background. I'm thinking about the patient maybe I saw earlier in the day that didn't maybe go as well, but the procedure I have to do tomorrow. And again, it's not unique to, to medicine. This is applicable to everybody in every profession, right? There's how how do we completely disconnect from that i mean is finding the anchor is one strategy when you have these stresses that again everything is kind of seems urgent all the time mm -hmm. right and, you, and then you also have people who are asking for attention your loved ones other than maybe just finding those brief moments in life how do you just kind of put those like stretch that out where you can have greater times of being present in the moment. Does that make sense? I think it comes down to intention. So when practicing mindfulness, one of the big challenges, especially during such an intense course, like mindfulness based stress reduction is that people are coming into this course with like time scarcity. There is an attention um, or sorry, an action bias that many of us have, that we have this constant need to do, do, do. There are so many things that can take up each second of our lives that if we don't come to how we spend our time with intention, then it will become all-consuming that you're not practicing mindfulness. So it comes to the point where you decide for yourself because how you spend your time, it's all about choices. And when you see that you do have a choice in how you spend your time because you're intentional about it, then I think things can start opening up for you in ways that might not have seemed possible before. For instance, like being mindful of your media consumption, like screen time, especially over this past year, with schools going on Zoom and all of the news and how addictive that can be, also with social media and smartphones. If we're intentional about shutting that down and sitting with ourselves for however many minutes a day, and it doesn't have to be practicing mindfulness meditation, it could just be 
sitting outside and noticing nature. It could be walking outside from our clinic to the hospital mindfully. You, you can build in the intention for attention on the present moment, but it won't exist unless you purposefully seek it out for yourself. So you have to make that decision for yourself. It's a choice point. It's not going to happen automatically because what's going to be automatic is your default mode network where you're just busy all the time, right? We wear this badge of busyness. How are you today? Oh, I'm busy. And if you say you're not busy, like, are you not working enough? Like there's something wrong if you're not, if you're not busy. So wanting to shift that paradigm where you get to be very intentional with your time, I think is going to be the key in terms of how one can practice mindfulness. It's a big decision. It's not, it's not an easy thing. Like practicing mindfulness goes well beyond that of, um, of just noticing the present moment. It's a consistent practice. And we have to kind of retrain our brains to be able to do that. Yeah, and type A individuals such as ourselves where all we, we've been doing for years and years is just you're doing, doing, doing. You're constantly doing some type of activity because you need to, right? And what, 10, 15, 20 years that you're kind of building up to becoming a doctor and then now we're trying to retrain our brain. It's a challenge. I mean, we know that those, the neuroplasticity, it's the likelihood, your brain's not as malleable as you get older, right? I mean, those those synapses have kind of laid a good foundation. It's going to be much harder to rewire them. But something you mentioned kind of reminds me of a conversation. I remember, I forget where it was, but I think Ryan Holiday was talking to Tim Ferriss about this um at a time in his life when he was part of uh, Workaholics Anonymous. And, you know, he, he was saying that he wasn't as as much addicted to work, but instead addicted to activity. And again, this goes back to this idea that today, you know, often people are, especially the younger generation, because they're so, uh, they're always doing something in, and I put us in, in that category as well, you know, we're always about the next activity. Again, media, social media, things that are asking for our attention. Sometimes people get misdiagnosed or mislabeled as having ADHD because they're jumping from left and right. And it's not, again, it's being addicted to activity and constant stimulation. And I'm guilty of that. I think that this is exactly why, for me, disconnecting has been so incredibly important. Because, again, another conversation I remember him having, again, Ryan Holiday talking about how it's called human being, not human doing. And he related to, I think now he lives like on a farm and he was talking about how just one day he was coming home and he just saw his goats just standing there not doing anything. And and he was just like, wow, that's that's remarkable. Like we would never do that. Most people, especially as type A's, we were like, I, I got, I'm wasting my time, right? And and I personally find myself that when I have those downtimes, whether it's a drive or I'm washing dishes or I'm cooking, I'm either listening to an audio book, I'll throw on a podcast or I'll throw something on because you know, it's, it's, uh, that's time, that's valuable time. I could be learning something. I could be doing something else. And now it's very much a conscious decision that I have to pause. And when I'm doing something, be mindful, Hey, I'm going to fold this laundry. It's torture. Let me tell you, Nichang, it, it is hard to do. And, and I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I didn't go just hundred percent all in that I no longer listen to podcasts or audiobooks because I do think you have to find that balance. 
Um, but I think that that's just something that's especially hard when you're always addicted to doing something to, to, to say, oh, hey, I'm going to completely be mindful and be alone with my thoughts and just sit there and not do all these other things, not have TV on in the background. It's super hard. But I think if someone's curious about it, they know they don't know what they're capable of in terms of like their ability to be truly in the present moment, not multitasking unless they actually try. So I truly believe that everyone can be mindful. Absolutely. You know, Nietzsche, you brought up this point about how humans wear this badge of honor about being busy, right? Because we equate busy to being productive and we equate being productive to social status and financial status. And it's it's almost as our self-worth, right? And I just want to mention, I don't know if you've read this, but there's an article called Lazy, a Manifesto. And it's just a beautiful article that talks about how we need to stop labeling ourselves as busy. And it's okay to not do that. And again, for the listeners out there, I'll link this into the show notes. But you know, right now I'm in my intern year. I have two months left and you guys know how tough intern year is. You guys have been through it. So, so often in medicine, we're taught, hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel. You know, you're going to get there. You know, you get more pride, you get more status as an attending, you make more money, right? And for me, I have two months left and I can definitely see that light at the end of the tunnel going into PM&R. But, you know, oftentimes now in my workflow, I'm so disengaged, right? Like I don't really have that intention like you're talking about. And I've, I'm burnt out. I'm truly burnt out. And now we have this whole definition of burnout, right? We have this whole issue in the healthcare system about burnout. What is burnout to you? Burnout to me is when there is the type of soul-sucking exhaustion that exists that is not able to be remedied with just taking a vacation or just taking a nap. There is a, a moral injury that has accumulated over time to the point where there is so much mind, body, and spirit exhaustion. That's my definition, but we know, you know, Christina Maslach's definition of, of burnout as emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and low sense of personal accomplishment. Sure. No, I think I've experienced all of that, the moral injury to the depersonalization, you know, definitely during this year, especially being an intern during COVID. I mean, it definitely hasn't been easy, but why is it you know, and I guess we can break this down in many different ways, but in the in healthcare, as of recently, you know, I've, I've seen a report saying about 50% of physicians have been burnt out. I'm sure that number's way higher. Why is it that we're seeing so much burnout in today's, in today's practice? I think that the way that pra- medicine is practiced now is not conducive to also healing the healers. Like we have a disease care system as opposed to a healthcare system. Um, I think that there's an industrialization of the practice of medicine in a way that is not conducive to the health and wellness of the healthcare professionals that are trying to heal others. Yeah. And, you know, the discouraging thing about that, I remember, well, I guess it was like 2012 that I was going to medical school. And I remember reading an article at that time that nine out of 10 doctors would not recommend going to medical school. In fact, most of the 
the physicians that I was shadowing asking, you know, talking about, and they were like, well, why do you want to go to medical school? You know, in, in tone that would say, this doesn't sound like a great idea. Financially, it's, you know, it's, if you can't afford to pay for it, taking out the loans, I, I think that most of us can agree that's probably not a good financial investment. And that's not the reasons why anybody should do it. I think most people will agree with that. But how do we get to talking about healing the healers, right? I, I mean, we, we've talked about you, for you, it was that, that switch that turned on. You were like, okay, I'm at this breaking point. This is not sustainable, right? This is not, that's going to happen. And I don't know if you would agree, but I think that the three of us having this conversation, I would say, I would consider ourselves fortunate because we had this realization because that's step one. We acknowledge that this is not a good way to do it. We need to find a better way. A lot of times people don't come to that until way later in life when it's maybe too late or, you know, they, they, they don't find that in, in residency training or maybe earlier on during fellowship, kind of like you did. So how do we go on talking about healing those healers or, or encouraging our healers to actually think about filling their own cup first? I think we are doing it. We are being the change that we want to see, right? With your podcast, my podcast and the Mindful Healthcare Collective work, especially over the last year. Um, I think medicine is at a tipping point where losing one physician a day on average to suicide is not something that should be the norm anymore. That being in medicine is hazardous to one's health because the rates of suicide are more than two times higher for women in medicine than the general population. Like that's ridiculous. That should not be the norm. And yet right now that's the norm. And probably after we come out of COVID, we're going to see that it was worse. That burnout was worse and is worse during COVID. So I think that having open conversations about it like this, uh, spreading the word, being part of the ripple effect, perhaps being a pebble or a big rock that makes a big splash to disrupt the narrative of how medicine is. And, and in my respect, in my, in my story of how I practice medicine now, I don't necessarily practice it in a uh, in a in the usual way if you will because coming to the realization of 20 minute visits 15 minute visits per patient um, constantly being on this hamster wheel of productivity it wasn't filling my cup as a healer anymore like I felt like I could not help patients to the extent that I wanted to help them and so in comes mindfulness, in comes this desire to want to get to root causes as opposed to like constantly putting band-aids on people and then having it be this revolving door. So for me, mindfulness has been kind of that, that point where I was able to bridge not only my own needs as a healer, but to also help heal my patients in a way that was more at the root level yeah so yeah yeah no you are speaking our language right you you, you nailed it when you said this is a disease care system right and our our motto is putting the health back in healthcare. um so i really i do want to get into how you teach you know you you call yourself a teacher and so i'm very interested in you know in this 15 minute system we have how have you formed your teachings how have you 
conveyed this message to your patients, especially as a bunch of us are trying to learn mindfulness. I know me and Altamash are very into root cause medicine. And at one point, that's the way we want to practice. So I w- we, we would love to learn from you as to how you do that. Yeah, so to be fair, I'm lucky in that in my practices, I've had 20 minute follow up visits, but I know that my like primary care physician colleagues have had not had the luxury of those extra five minutes. Um, even still, even within a 15 minute, 20 minute follow up visit for a very complicated patient, I still believe that you can build in even just a one minute practice with the patient. And that really is um, first checking in with the patient to see if they would be willing and open to experiencing it with you. And then leading them in a brief guided practice where the breath is an anchor. But if I know that some of my chronic lung disease patients focusing on the breath as an anchor is stress provoking and that's okay. So we can offer different alternative anchors of attention, like noticing the sensations of our hands in our lap or noticing the support of the ground beneath our feet. So like literally focusing attention on the feet as a grounding point as a focus of attention for the mindfulness practice. So we can, um, I can demonstrate if you want me to, but if not, then we can, um, and then after I lead them through that practice, I ask them how they're feeling. And I don't think I've had any patient say, oh my gosh, that was horrible. I'm like way more anxiety written now than before the practice, like a hundred percent. You're like, Oh, I feel calmer. I feel, I feel more grounded and it's empowering to them to know that they're able to come to that state on their own. Like I didn't give them any pill. I really just helped them focus their attention and harness their own physiology. So there's an empowering thing that happens when I teach someone how to practice mindfulness. So you, you mentioned, uh, you know, practicing and, and teaching our physician colleagues and our healthcare providing colleagues by using these platforms, right? And education and staying on that thread of education. I think another way to do it is to kind of help build it in the curriculum of medical schools, right? And in residency and very much something that you did. And I think from somewhere I saw that you were part of this curriculum development over at UCSD for mindful communication. Is that correct? You, you mind talking about that a little bit, what it was that the purpose of that was and what came out of that? Sure. So UCSD started incorporating mindfulness in the practice of medicine course a couple years about years ago. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be part of um, one of the revisions, if you will, to some of the modules for the, the curriculum, the how to be a doctor course. So every other week, the med students in their first and second years would have mindfulness practice embedded into the curriculum. And so looking back at my own med school curriculum, I wish that I had that. And I, I think that it's so great to see so many more medical schools embed mindfulness into medical school um, and I hope to see residencies also embed it. So in terms of the mindful communication curriculum, it was under the auspices of getting permission from my mindfulness teachers, Ron Epstein and Mick Krasner, really the 
the seminal pioneers, if you will, in the physician world of bringing mindfulness into clinical practice. So they wrote a seminal article in JAMA published in 2009, where they used a mindful communication curriculum that they had created and had, I think it was like 50 something primary care physicians go through this curriculum with CME and burnout was reduced, reductions in anxiety and stress. Uh, and then the results were that even a year out, 18 months out from the intervention, the results were still quite persistent. So there was definitely a shift. And so in training with them and learning how to teach that curriculum, I taught the med students as part of a elective. So there was a mindfulness and medicine elective and I brought the mindful communication curriculum to that course uh, and it, had been really, really well received. So kind of going beyond just the five to 30 minute practices every other week of the practice of medicine program was this immersion in an hour and a half, two hour elective that many medical students chose to take. So it was like, again, trying to be the change that I wanted to see and trying to change the culture of medicine so that we catch the trainees earlier on so that they have these we always start off with like these tools to help them matriculate with health and wellness for themselves as they're caring for and as they're learning throughout their training and then going into residency uh, I had worked with UCSC internal medicine residents on embedding some mindfulness workshops into their noon conference schedules. So there was an internal grant that I got to do like a pilot for using mindfulness as the foundation for a wellness program. And this was around the time when the ACGME had come down with the requirement that all training programs had to have some component of wellness. So it came at a timely moment. Is that still an active part of the, their curriculum or are they still practicing it or did that kind of drop off when you left? So there is still a wellness curriculum. It's not as heavily entrenched in mindfulness as the curriculum that I had introduced was, um, but UCSD luckily has a very robust center for mindfulness that is always constantly actively engaging in the medical school and trainee side of things. Yeah, and, and that's what it's all about, right? I mean, if we if we want to make this long-term, the systemic type change, you know, these practices have to be built into the core curriculum at an early standpoint, right? Because it's truly an art. And before somebody can get to that point of that being able to practice this effectively in a 15, 20, 30-minute visit, you need to kind of refine your own craft and you need to kind of be exposed to that or very year one in medical school, ideally even sooner than that, because again, you're going to practice for yourself before you can try to teach somebody else or quote somebody else down the road and, and to do it in a manner that's going to be successful and get them to buy in as well. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of that. And I'd love to see more programs try to incorporate that earlier on. The other thing that I remember, again, you had talked about individuals with chronic lung disease, find it challenging to focus on the breath as an anchor, right? And so you need to kind of find other things. 
you were also part of this project. I think you were the PI that used mindfulness-based stress reduction for chronic lung disease. Is that, and I can't think of a better time than now that that would be more applicable. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. And, and then how would you relate that to COVID and especially this this case of long COVID that a lot of times we're seeing people not really bouncing back. There have a lot of other systemic issues as well, but particularly the pulmonary issues that comes with that. So the the study that you mentioned, I presented at the American Thoracic Society. And incidentally, this was after I had recovered from cancer. So after, after that, I wanted to bring mindfulness more to the forefront of pulmonary medicine. And this was one way was to entrench it with some research. Uh, and the data, and I had very it was a very, very small cohort of patients. I had like less than 10 patients undergo the mindful space stress reduction course. And the results interestingly showed in all of the different surveys, the questionnaires that we used, um, there was actually a trend towards interestingly, the six minute walk distance actually being a little bit longer after they took the course, which was like an unanticipated result. Um, so that was one poignant thing. So like, could it be that mindfulness helps you to accept and allow the shortness of breath that you feel, but that because of that acceptance, it allows you to walk farther, perhaps even faster, longer. Um, and then of course, like the quality of life metrics definitely improved as well. Um, the most poignant, though, of um, of more recent work, because I've taught it to my patients um, since that that pilot study, has been that one of my asthma patients used to be riddled with panic attacks, which would inevitably set off asthma symptoms. Um, and she was in the middle of a grocery store, and she wrote to me after the fact, saying that because of the mindfulness training that she had, she was able to get herself out of her panic attack, like right then and there. Like she, she paused, stood and did a brief body scan practice in the middle of the grocery store. And that broke the cycle of that panic attack. And so to me, it's like stuff like that, the qualitative data that has been super, super poignant for, um, for seeing how, people's stories with their chronic lung disease have, have changed with mindfulness. That's go for it. Go for it. Oh, and just that with long COVID, um, I think that integrative therapies are going to be the mainstay in terms of treatment for long COVID. Cause this goes, the effects of COVID go beyond that of the lungs in long COVID syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. There's a, a mental health, component that also comes with long COVID, the debility, this chronic pain that some patients have also. So I think that mindfulness is going to be really key to the healing of long COVID as well. Right. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that's, those are the stories that I love to hear. Right. And I think that, you know, when, when we talk about training and how do we, how do we infiltrate the young minds of, uh, first year and second year med students, you know, as they go into clinicals, 
I was I was the um, chair of the integrative and complementary medicine club um, at VCon Virginia, where I went to med school. And you know, I started this thing called Meditation Mondays, but it's just so hard to try to bring people to kind of come together, ground your feet, you know, on the earth and in our pretty lawn that we have there. But it's things like that you mentioned, and we did have, you know, topics on wellness and meditation, why it's important, but no one really points out those stories, the data points as to how this works, why this works, right? And I always talk about Dr. Andrew Huberman because he says these, when when we understand the mechanism behind things, that's when we start to take action. So, you know, it just, hearing those stories are kind of the reasons how I got into this and why I really want to practice it as well. So I just really wanted to share that. Yeah, Nichang, uh, and you know, you're talking a lot about mindfulness as an antidote, right? And I want to use, so let, let's just pivot a little bit. And I want to talk about something that's obviously that that we need to talk a little bit more about it and draw, pay more attention to in terms of, you know, what's going on over the last couple, year or so. I would say that you as a pulmonologist and a critical care doctor and a mindfulness ex- expert, you are in a unique position to talk about this. You know, I, I can confidently say that no other stressor uh, has affected us as a species on a global level in the past 30 years, pretty confidently, I can say that, like this pandemic has, particularly because we, because of how long it's it's taken, it's, it's still going on, it's been over a year now, and we don't even remember what normal, quote unquote, is like, right? So how have you dealt with that, the adverse effects? You, you talked a little bit about long COVID and, and then the adverse effects and the complications, particularly pain, the dysautonomia, those things is that. You know, how have you coached your patients and, and colleagues to deal with that? And then the second question that I have, and this one's a bit more challenging, is this, the racial tensions that have been going on in this country, right? The uptick of racism that we've seen over the last year, year and a half, and the brutality and, and those types of incidences, and it being at the, the political climate has been very tense, to say the least. And, you know, I consider this particular topic and, and, and these issues to, uh, you know, I, I think that we can all agree that this is kind of the dark side of humanity, right? And, and we know that as healthcare providers, that when we're stressed, when we're tired, the, the worst of us comes out, right? Um, sometimes we have a lack of empathy with our patients. And, and, and I, have, I have no doubt that the stresses from this pandemic have contributed to some of that, the uptick in the dark side. So... The second part is that, you know, you being you, a Chinese American, having, you know, a, a, an Asian American, what has been your experience on the other side with respect to your ethnicity, both as a physician sitting in front of patients who look at you as this Asian American and this virus and everything, and then also as a member of society? How has your life changed and, you know, what strategies can we use and how can we incorporate mindfulness to, to maybe not to be better, to not let the dark side overtake us and not let our bad days define our, our character? I think that second question could be like a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but let me answer your first question. And very simply for the first question, in terms of like how I bring in mindfulness and really like health and wellness into clinic visits with my patients who have heightened levels of stress, as well as my healthcare professional colleagues is having them focus really on their five pillars of health, like really coming back to the basics of health and wellness, right? Like nutrition, sleep, 
stress reduction. So stress reduction doesn't have to be mindfulness. It has to be something that resonates with you that you'll actually do. Exercise and then social connection. So not necessarily physical connection, but social connection. So that intentionality again comes into play with protecting time to connect with loved ones like Zoom or on the phone. So I've been really, really highlighting the five pillars of health, uh, which is great because I'm an integrative medicine fellow at University of Arizona. So um, I feel like I'm practicing integrative medicine now way more than pre-COVID. And so, yeah, it, I, it goes back to the five pillars of health. So hopefully that answers your first question. A second question about uh, the anti-Asian racism that has increased dramatically over the last year. Unfortunately, I have been on the receiving end of anti-Asian racism amongst my patients. I'm going to admit that. And I, I wrote about it in a Kevin MD article where basically the patient made a racist comment about China. And I approached that experience in a mindful way, but knowing very, very well and feeling what an automatic stress reactivity response or a defensive response would have been. So holding the duality of like the anger and the hurt that I was feeling, labeling it, recognizing that. So like noticing it with a mindful lens, not trying to judge it because there was also this patient physician relationship that I didn't necessarily want to destroy. I ended up in a place of curiosity. So holding the anger and the frustration and the hurt of this particular statement, and yet like responding with a question of genuine curiosity. So curiosity is also one of like the main foundational practices within mindfulness. Um, I was able to kind of diffuse the situation a bit and come back into my own place of authenticity as a healthcare professional, trying to come, trying to provide compassionate care to this person who might not have had all of the facts or who might not have had the wherewithal to realize that I was Chinese American <laughs> Um, but not to like condone or to like resign or to accept uh, that particular statement as being okay, but more along the lines of feeling empowered in choosing my own response that was constructive as opposed to destructive. So yeah, in mindfulness, I think mindfulness is, is a key to practicing being anti-racist and to also practice a uh, self-compassionate response when one is on the receiving end of, of racism. Yeah, right. I think, you know, it's never, 
oftentimes when we get that volatile, you know, um, attacks on us, it's not, it's not about us, right? It's, it's, it's about that person. But like you said, I think mindfulness can often help guide that compassion and empathy, even with quote unquote, our worst enemies. And, you know, I, I was listening to a Ted uh, podcast at one point, it was about Disney and, you know, they, they, they mentioned a comment saying it's impossible to not fall in love with someone once you understand their story. And I think mindfulness for me is, you know, when, when I'm in a situation like yours, which, you know, I, I, I can't relate to that. Um, but when someone at least, you know, is angry at me and, you know, you can only control what you can control, but it's about that curiosity that you just mentioned. It's about understanding why they feel that way, right? Being authentic, being genuine. And, you know, it's, it's evident throughout this podcast that you've had a lot of experience, not only in healthcare, not only with patients, but just in life in general, right? With their cancer diagnosis and whatnot. You've had a lot of opportunity. You've had a lot of learnings. You've also been a teacher. And one thing I love learning about in other people is, you know, kind of their growth mindset, kind of how they evolved as a human being. Can you touch on how has your philosophy changed, if at all, you know, from when you first started mindfulness to where you are now? Yes. So when I first started mindfulness, the the attitude of non-striving was the hardest for me to embody. And I think it's still a tough one for me, especially being still entrenched in, in the practice of medicine. Um, but it's easier for me to be intentional about non-striving because I know what striving too much got me into. Like, I dare say that had I not been as stressed out, had I not been going 200 miles an hour, had I not been doing and stressed out so much that maybe I wouldn't have had cancer. So my, my mindset, even from just the early training of becoming a mindfulness teacher has been, I, I'm not in a rush necessarily anymore to like check off all the check boxes for like mindfulness credentialing and doing this training and doing that training and just consuming, consuming and consuming. Um, so I'm very much more intentional about choosing additional courses to take um, when and with whom I'm teaching uh, and who I teach to. So there's, there's this, there's a bigger pause before action that has settled in over the last 10 years. Before it was much more of an urgency, like I need to teach this, I need to learn this, I need to apply it, and everyone needs to know about it. And now it's more taking this non-striving lens of like, there is no rush, I am doing the work, and people will come to do this work when they're ready. Like I can show everyone the door and I can be vulnerable in sharing my story so that they can see the door more easily, but I can't open the door for them. So similar to like what you were saying, like really embodying and understanding that I cannot control the actions or the thoughts of other people. I can only work on my own. Absolutely. That's all we can do. We can only work on, you know, control what you can control and acknowledge that it was not in, in your control and be okay with that. And so speaking of that, you know, we've been 
talking a lot about mindfulness and the hope is somebody will listen to this and, and, and they're going to try to incorporate maybe if it's just a few breaths a day or, or just some of the strategies that you mentioned of how they can be mindful. But speaking of that, you know, I think that most of us agree with, we look at mindfulness as preventative care, right? For a lot of these ailments down the road. And I think I heard you talk about this on your show is, you know, the analogy you use was, or it's like brushing your teeth, right? You don't wait till you get the cavity to brush your teeth. You brush it on a daily basis to prevent that cavity, cavity, excuse me. But sometimes you do get that cavity, right? And, and sometimes that happens and maybe that's when mindfulness isn't going to be the solution. Or is it going to be the solution? I'm not really sure. And I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. My thoughts are that, you know, it, it is more of a preventative care thing. But often when you get to that point where, again, just using the metaphor, you, you get that cavity, that that's when you need to go out and get some help. Perhaps it's seeking out a mental health professional. Or would you say that, no, mindfulness still has a role in that and individuals should, should still try to work through that themselves? Or where are you on that? I think it's a combination. And of course, it's like, super person specific. So I can use my own journey in cancer as an experience. So going through therapy after the acute treatment that I had could not have been replaced with the practice of mindfulness. So I want to just put it out there that I think mental health is tremendously important. Um, but that it was the practice of mindfulness that enabled me to get the most of the mental health care that I was getting um, and also give me additional tools for self-empowerment in changing the relationship that I had had with stress. So it was kind of an adjunctive treatment. So I, I, I would say that Mindfulness is not a panacea, and there's actually contraindications to to learning mindfulness, namely like acute suicidal ideation, a psychosis, very severe untreated anxiety and depression, for instance, to name a few. But if using mindfulness doesn't necessarily get you to an end goal or an end result, then that in and of itself is a practice opportunity to use mindfulness to perhaps, again, coming back to allowing and accepting reality just as it is, even if you don't like it. And not necessarily letting it be a like, well, that mindfulness stuff didn't work for me this time, so it's not gonna work for me in the future. Um, so mindfulness can then more so become a adjunctive skill that you learn that you then embody and then that aspect of mindfulness can then leak out into every nook and cranny of your life. So hopefully that helps answer the question. So it's kind of like a combination of the two. Absolutely, when in doubt, mental health about using mindfulness as an adjunctive option 
can oftentimes be helpful, especially if you partner with a mental health care professional to go through such an intensive program like mindfulness-based stress reduction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think all of us have trauma, at least from childhood, right? That we need to learn to deal with and work through. So even while we're doing mindfulness, I think a lot of times these traumas pop up into our head. Now it's about figuring out how do we resolve these, right? Conflict resolution, but as well as the preventative side, like you talked about. Now, people listening to this podcast are going to say, hey, how do I get started, right? So one thing I love to talk about are books. And that's honestly how I kind of got started. And, you know, Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, absolutely one of my favorite books about mindfulness and just being in that present moment. And I had no idea Ron Epstein was your mentor because I actually read Attending, which was fantastic. And I think I talk about it almost in every episode so far that we've recorded here. And Altamash can attest to that, which is why we were smiling in the beginning of this um, episode when you when you mentioned his name. But any other, re- any other books you recommend or podcasts or websites? And of course, we have your podcast, which we'll definitely, you know, link in the show notes and talk about. Yeah, so Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn is basically the mindfulness-based stress reduction course in a book. Uh, so definitely highly recommend that. Um, and then there is Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness by Sharon Salzberg, also a uh, mindfulness uh, and self-compassion contemporary that I consider one of my teachers. I think all of us could use a little bit more self-compassion. Um, and then pertinent to the heightened racial tensions across our country is Professor Rhonda McGee's book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness, for people who are interested in furthering anti-racism with mindfulness. So those are some of the some of the the books that I recommend. I have a otherwise a long list as well. <laughs> I know that list keeps growing and growing. And Darsh and I talk about this all the time. We were just talking about it two days ago, and then now he's got an extra couple of books on him. And so do I. Uh, I think some of these are going to have to uh, skip the line here for me for sure, uh, just because I've enjoyed so much of this and you guys have talked about Ronald Epstein, both of you guys. So now I know two people who are endorsing him. So I, I got to check his work out, but Nichang, this has been awesome. Um, before we let you go, we, we want to know two things. Where can people find more about you, your work and, and then what's next for you? What are you excited about? What are some of your future goals coming up for you, uh, for the mindful healers collective, um, and for your podcast, what's coming up? Yeah, so you can find me at my website at awakenbreath.org. And you can also join the mindfulhealthcarecollective.com. We also have the Facebook group by the same name. We're at over 2,100 members now. Very excited to have provided over 150 free online live sessions for healthcare professionals and the general public since March of last year. The sister group of Mindful Healing Collective.com is for the general public. Uh, so same thing, Facebook group, and also there's a website by that name. And our podcast is the Mindful Healers Podcast.com, and you can find us on all major podcast platforms. In terms of what's next, so I'm currently teaching Mindful Space Stress Reduction, uh, and I will be teaching a cycle of mindful physicians, my CME accredited course come August. 
So it's really taking the application of mindfulness into day-to-day practice of medicine and beyond. Uh, And then Jesse Mahoney, my my co-host for the podcast, and I are going to be leading a retreat in the fall. So we're looking for it to be CME accredited. It's going to be at a beautiful location. Stay tuned by following, subscribing. Hope to see you there. Absolutely. And we will, again, definitely, for those of you listening, definitely check out the show notes. We're going to link everything we kind of just talked so, about. So um, one of the questions that we want to ask, as Darsh mentioned, that you know our motto here is adding that health back to healthcare. So the last question that we ask every guest and we want to ask you is, how do you think we can add the health back in healthcare? Or what does the term medicine redefined mean to you? Medicine redefined means embodying, being willing, and taking back the art of medicine into the healer's hands, where healing the healers is automatically embedded into practicing the art of medicine. I love that. Uh, And I think that this conversation has given us a lot of perspective on how we can do that. And and hopefully people will follow you on on your, listen to your podcast. I'm a huge fan, both of you and and, and your partner, Jesse Mahoney. And, uh, and hopefully I encourage everybody to, to both join the, either the mindful healers collective or or the mindful healing collective. I know I'm going to try to, to, to do that myself and, uh, and be a part of it. So Nishang, I want to thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. We've learned a lot and uh, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Take care. Well, I hope after listening to Dr. Liang, you guys feel just as zen out as I do. Please share this with anyone in your life that you believe needs to start on the practice of meditation and mindfulness and just being in the present moment in this beautiful life that we're all living. One last thing before we go, remember Advice Media, don't forget to schedule a consult with them to receive a $60 gift card and strategic insight on what your current digital marketing is doing or not doing for you. Contact Advice Media at drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash advice media. Again, that's drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash advice media. Time for that quick disclaimer. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. We recommend that you seek the guidance of your personal physician regarding any specific health-related issues. And until next time, please subscribe, share, rate, and review.